will be from 1 John 4:12 and 19 to 21. And you can follow along. You can follow along in your Bible or it'll be on the screen um, behind us, behind me. Um, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or si and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. This is God's word. I had this reoccurring dream. Uh, I've had it for the, like, the last almost 15 years, which is maps about how long I've been here at Reality. Um, and the dream is uh, I am backstage, and it happens, this dream happens like in um, different locations. Uh, I'm backstage, and I'm trying to either see my notes, and I can't, they're all blurry, and I can't see them, and then someone's like, uh, you're on, you're up, you're up. And I'm like, I can't see my notes. Or I'm like working to try to finish my notes and I haven't finished. Like, you're up and I'm, well, I'm, that happened today. So, um, <laughs> and not because, uh, not because I watched the football game last night. Uh, but because this topic is so, so, uh, so beautiful to get, but really hard to communicate. And I'm trying to find words, and the words are, they're circular. If you've ever read First uh, John, his arguments are just keep going around and around and around and around. You're like, I, why do they keep going around? And it's because that's actually how this works. But trying to get that to where you explain it is really hard. So um, we'll see how this nightmare rolls out. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, uh, we, uh, well, Please help me. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, <clears throat> so we're in this series called The Vision is Love. And the first week, we taught on uh, the love that is God. And then last week, we talked on the God that is love. And today, I would like to talk about the love that is love. Now, if you were new to the Christian faith and you wanted to know what the Christian faith was all about, let's say you're new, you're visiting. Um, if you are, welcome. You wanna know what the Christian faith is all about. I mean, what, what, what does all of, like, all of this book mean? Like, all these pages and all these words mean and all the songs, uh, all the smells and bells if you uh, go to a liturgical church or all the, the bells and yells if you go to a more Pentecostal church. What is it all about, right? What is it all about? And not just what is it all about, but what is... Christianity trying to do in the adherent? What is, it, what is it trying to do in the person who believes? And what is it trying to do through the person to, who believes into the world? Or to put it in like really religious language, what is Christ through the Spirit transforming the disciple of Jesus into for the sake of the world? Now, if you were to boil all of that down and sought to find the essence of what Christianity is about and what it's doing in the world, you would do no better than to say, love. There is no better answer than love. Amen. And because the answer is so simple, 
it can be both cliche and stale. But that doesn't make it any less true. The Apostle Paul, after his exposition of love in 1 Corinthians 13, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, where he says love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, like he goes on and he describes what love is, says that after everything, after he does his whole exposition of love, he says after everything is said and done with the Christian faith, after everything is said, there's three things that remain, three virtues for the follower of Christ that remain. And he says in verse 13, and now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. The greatest virtue, the greatest thing that God wants from your life, the greatest thing God is trying to do in the human heart, mind, soul, and body is love. When Jesus was asked to boil down all the law and the prophets in the Old Testament, which isn't easy to do, by the way, given that there are a lot of laws in the Old Testament, and there's a lot of things that prophets said to live into. Jesus says this, boil it all down. He says, replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the laws and the prophets, everything in the Old Testament, everything in the Torah, everything hang on these two commandments. Now, of course, in retrospect, what Jesus says makes perfect sense. That's exactly what the whole Bible is pointing to, loving God and loving others. It's the whole of the law. It's the whole of the Bible. But why? Why is it the whole of the Bible? Why is it the whole of the law? Well, because love is the essence of who God is. This was the subject of our sermon two weeks ago. Love is the essence of who God is, the radical and I use that word literally, taken from the Latin word radix, which means the very root of. The very root claim of Christianity is that love is so characteristic of the divine that we are justified to say that God is love. 1 John 4, 8 and verse 16 both say God is love. Therefore, Jesus makes it clear that to have received the love of God, to be transformed by the love of God, and to respond by loving God, we must love each other. To have received the love, to have been transformed by the love, to then love God in return means that we are to love each other. Jesus makes this very clear. He says this in, verse, in chapter 13 of John. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Actually, Jesus ties love for one another, brother, sister, neighbor, as the identity marker of his disciple. Not a big Bible, not a, not a gold chain with a cross on it, not a Jesus t-shirt, not even the fact that you visit church. This is the mark of a disciple. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus is after making disciples who love. And of course, for the people in the back that Jesus needs to repeat this for, he says it again. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And he says it again, five verses later, this is my command, love each other. It's almost as if this would be the hardest thing. 
it's almost as if this would be the thing that we would miss. This would be the thing that we would justify not doing. Later on in the New Testament, the Apostle John puts a very, very fine point on what Jesus is saying here when he says, 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us, that is God. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister, do you hate anybody? You're a liar. <laughs> the Bible, it's just like, it's, whoever does not, Whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen, and some, sometimes that's the hardest part, is seeing them. If I didn't see them, I could love them. But because I see them, it's hard to love them. Whoever does not love their brother or sister who they can, have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. John plays with this scene, not seen all the time. We talked about this last week. This is how he, John opens uh, his gospel, known as seeing God, but the unique son of God, who is himself God, has made him known. Jesus has made him known. He says, whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen, and he has given us this command, and he repeats the command because Jesus repeated it like 100 times. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. What John is doing in the tradition of Jesus is he's essentially joining love for God and love for each other. He makes them one. Those things are now united and unified and integrated. You can't just choose one of them. You can't just be a humanist and love people. It doesn't work. You will not love them correctly. And you can't just be a worshiper and love God. If you did that, you don't love God. They both must exist together. Like hydrogen and oxygen must exist together for there to be the reality of water, so too the love for God and love for neighbor must exist together for there to be the reality of a disciple of Jesus. There is no disciple of Jesus without loving God and loving each other. Why? Why is Jesus and the New Testament writers so hung up on this? And this is the question that I've been wrestling with. Why are they so hung up on this? I've been reading the Bible for the better part of 30, almost 30 years now, and uh, as a Christian, I came to faith a little later on in life. And I, I, I still get like, like, okay, I get it, I get it. We're to love each other, I get it, I get it. But I don't get it. Why are you so hung up on this? Why is this such a big deal? Why can't we do some epic worship sets? And then like, read our Bibles and go to the mountains and pray? Why can't that be the essence of our faith? Why this thing? Why, are you, why aren't we allowed to kind of hate who we need to hate? <laughs> like we need to hate some people, right? Like there are races that need to hate other races in order for them to like get, we say, get liberated and free? Or there's nations and societies that need to hate other nations. Why can't we hate certain people who we know are the bad ones so that we do not become like them? And we try to get around this all the time, right? We say things like, well, the Bible says to love, love everyone, but that doesn't mean that we have to like everyone. What does that even mean? What does that mean? I, it's just stupid Christian things that go around that we say. We're like, 
I don't have to like you, I'm gonna love you, I don't have to like you. <laughs> and not just why this is here, but how in the world do we do it? How in the world do we love one another? How in the world do we love our neighbor as Jesus defined my neighbor? It all seems really hard to do. We can't just believe in Jesus and pray and meditate, do some spiritual practices and let the Spirit guide me wherever it is he wants, whatever he, whatever he wants to do in my life. That's kind of how we want to do it, right? Our American Christianity has a very individualistic flavor. I pray, I worship, I go to the church that I choose to go to for as long as I choose to go there, and I will live where I want to choose to live as long as I choose to live there, and the Spirit just leads me, man. I just go with wherever the Spirit leads. This is where the Spirit's leading today. I was reading uh, a book over my Christmas holiday by the musician Nick Cave. I've been saying this and people go, Nick Cage wrote a book? No, Nick Cave, C-A-V-E, uh, from Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds and all sort of iterations of his music. And the book is called Faith, Hope, and Carnage, which is such a great title. And in it, um, he says something rather interesting. The, the book uh, takes place as a, um, a dialogue between him and kind of like a biographer. Um, but it, yeah, I'll just say that, just to make it easy. And then Nick says something rather interesting that the biography for goes back to in the book. He said, you said this to me before and I wanna revisit this. He said, he said that Nick said, I'm not spiritual, I'm religious. And my songs aren't spiritual, they're religious. And the biographer goes back to that, he goes, can we talk um, uh, Sean O'Hagan goes, can we talk about that? Because usually people say, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. That's the line, right? In San Francisco, man, I'm not so religious at all. Religion kills things. I'm spiritual, man. And that's what we get, and he goes, no, 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 I'm not spiritual, I'm religious. He's like, why, why are you saying that? What, is that? what is that about? Let's click into that. And he said, Nick says, it's because spirituality doesn't require anything from you. It's too amorphous. It can mean almost anything. But religion makes demands of you. And these demands in religion will cause you to wrestle and draw out of you in the wrestling faith and doubt, which are a part of the whole process of you becoming someone different. You wrestling with faith and you wrestling with doubt. And I love this part of the book, and I thought it was very insightful. It's a thread that kind of keeps the, goes throughout the whole book. And I would like to suggest to you that at the heart of the Christian religion, and it is a religion, we've talked about this before in the Transcendental series, it is a religion. At the heart of the Christian religion is the demand to become people of love. That is the demand. This is the demand that Christianity places on your life. If you're a Christian, you're not just spiritual and I, I love Jesus and I do some cool things and like I go here and there, I'm like spirit led. The demand on your life is to become a person of love. And this gets, I think, usually this gets like, you know, some, some resonance, some claps, some snaps, some woohoos, some like, but this isn't easy. Not only is it not easy, it's deadly serious. Jesus calls it a command Paul in Romans 13.8 calls it a debt. He says, owe no one anything except to love one another. So love is an obligation, a command, and a debt. 
But how does it work? How do you muster up love for someone, even someone you hate? How do you show genuine love for your neighbor? Because Jesus says to love your neighbor and defines your neighbor as someone in need. We'll get to that in a second. It defines your neighbor, who is my neighbor that I'm supposed to love? Anyone in need. Okay, then I'm gonna serve people that are in need. But then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that you can give everything you have to the poor and serve everyone in need, but have not love and you are nothing. So wait, okay, I'm supposed to love by serving people in need, but I could do that in ways that are not loving? Yes. So we have some things to figure out here, and I'm not gonna solve it in one sermon, by the way. Just, just to let you know. We're gonna try to scratch the surface and build on it. How do you love in ways that are genuine? And this is hard, and this is so hard, that what we typically say is, you know what, I just, it's way easier to love God than to love other people. I love showing up in a climate-controlled room and singing songs by wonderful musicians around people that are somewhat like me, or I wake up with a cup of coffee and my Bible. It's way easier to love God than others. And the only reason why it might be easier to love God than others is because you're living in a fantasy. Bauer Schmidt, in his book, The Love That Is God, which is kind of a, a primary text in the series, says, I might think it's easier to love God whom I imagine vaguely as something somewhere that is everything good and lovable than it is to love my grimy and annoying neighbor who is insistently there, in my face, making demands. But that is because the God I claim to love is a fantasy of my own creation, not the grimy and annoying God who is there on the cross making demands. I cannot love that God without loving my neighbor because that God has become my neighbor. Now we're in it, and this is, this is the stuff. This is the demands that we have to wrestle through. Wait, that God on the cross has become my neighbor? When Jesus says that the greatest command is to love God and love neighbor, he is asked later on, who is my neighbor? Which is a good question. Who is my neighbor? Because in that society, it defined a neighbor by people that were like them. Their ethnicity, their race, their people. That was their neighbor. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus breaks apart that paradigm through a parable called the Good Samaritan, and I'm sure you're very familiar with it. There is someone who is considered an enemy, uh, or someone that, that gets beat up on the road and an enemy comes up to him, a Samaritan who the Jews did not like, and the Samaritan helped that person by cleaning up their wounds, binding them up, taking them to a hotel or a hospital, paying for their stay and everything that they needed. And Jesus says, that person was a neighbor to that person. That's your neighbor. Now, if that wasn't intense enough, and that's, kinda, that's really intense. If that wasn't intense enough, later on, Jesus, when he speaks on the final judgment, so when, he speaks, when Jesus speaks on the final judgment, the conversation could not get more serious. Jesus shares a parable of dividing the sheep and the goats. And the sheep are those who will move towards life forever in God's kingdom, and the goats are those who will not. And Jesus has some crazy words reserved for them. And you might be asking, how does someone get to this everlasting kingdom, and how does someone get to this very place that's not the everlasting kingdom. And the way Jesus tells this parable is that those that were hungry and thirsty and naked and a stranger and sick and imprisoned 
The people that help those people are the ones who got everlasting life. And this is what's so strange about the parable, because Jesus says this, and he goes up to the, to the sheep, and he says, enter into my rest. Like, why? Because when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you visited me and cared for me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was hungry, you gave me food. And they asked, when in the world did we see you? I don't remember seeing you there doing that. And Jesus says this, when you did it for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. And then, Jesus turns to his left and he says, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of these least of me, you did not do to me. And then he says this, off into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Like Jesus, whoa, bro, just calm down. <laughs> that, those are his words. When did we, you didn't do this to me. Like, when did we see you? If we would've saw you, surely we would've helped you. Whatever you didn't do for the least of these, you didn't do for me. Now, I have, I have, um, I have a confession, I have a thought. And this is a confession. My confession is that I, th I have thought in the past that Jesus was being dramatic. He was trying to say, like, how dramatic do I have to be to make this command stick for you? To get you off your butt and do something. Okay, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna use this crazy parable that will threaten you with the fires of hell, and that's how you're gonna get off your butt. And I do this with my kids sometimes. I'm not proud of it, I do it. <laughs> I don't like send them to hell. I'm just saying, I, what I do is I make, I make the, I'm, I try to make the thing that they, I want them to do so serious that they take me serious. I say like, if you don't put your clothes in the laundry basket when you take them off, and kids just have this, like, clothes everywhere. Like, they're snakes, they're shedding skin all over the place. I'm like, <laughs> grab your clothes, put them in the laundry basket. If you do not do that, I am taking all of your clothes away. <laughs> I've said that before. And to a kid, they're like, oh! I mean, but, but can I? I don't know if I could do that. I don't think that would be right. I don't know if it's, I don't, but I'd say it. I say it just so they know the seriousness I want you to know the seriousness of like, pick up your clothes. I thought that Jesus was doing that, but he just kind of one-upping everyone. He's like, if you don't help people, you're going to hell. Up to you, up to you, I'm out. <laughs> like I think Jesus is just being super dramatic. Like he's just pulling out, he's doing like the parent thing. But because this is so dramatic, we might miss what's happening. Jesus is uniting Love for God and love for neighbor. He's uniting love for God and love for neighbor. Love for God and love for neighbor for Jesus have become one thing. And because that is true, in the face of our neighbor, who is the least of these, we find Jesus himself. And in Jesus, we find God. Another way of saying what Jesus is saying here in this parable is what John writes in our text. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God and hates his brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. You can't love God who you do not see when you hate your brother whom you do see. Now. Here's the double plot twist, you ready? 
The plot twist, again, remember, John plays around with no one has seen God, right? The invisible God, he plays around with this idea all the time. The plot twist, according to Matthew 25, the, the sheep and the goats, is that when you love the least of these, you see God. That's what Jesus is saying, right? In the face of those who are the least, you will see me. I have identified myself with them. No one has seen God, but Jesus says, when you serve the least of these, you will see me through them. And double plot twist, you ready for this? And when you love like that, they see God in you because God's love is made complete in you, we'll talk about that in a second, and you embody the love of God to them. God is made manifest to you by serving the least, because you see the face of God in them, and they, by being served by you, see the face of God in you. How is God seen in this world? Love. Look at verse 12. No one has seen God, but if we love one another, the implication being God and his love that is unseen, is in you and is shown to the world through you, therefore showing God to the world. And this is really good to stop here and ask why. Why is there this vital connection between love of God and love of neighbor? Why is this connection there? I can believe it in faith. Some of us can just go, I just believe it. I don't know why it's there, but I believe it. I believe it in faith. But as we sit and wrestle through our doubts, we are led to ask, why is this connection there? Catherine of Siena, the very famous Italian mystic, who is a saint and a doctor of the church because of her extensive theological writings, once contemplated this very question. Why should love be shown to the least of these? Why should that love be counted as love shown to Jesus? Why should friendship with God be tied to friendship with other people? This is what she meditated on. And in her work called The Dialogue, God speaks to Catherine and tells her why. And this is what God said to her. God says to Catherine, I ask you to love me with the same love with which I love you. But you cannot do this, for I have loved you without being loved. Whatever love you have for me, you owe me. So you, you love me, not gratuitously, but out of duty. While I love you not out of duty, but gratuitously. So you cannot give me the kind of love I ask of you. Okay, this, what, what is happening here is basically a riff on, John, on 1 John. The love that we love God with is not love. Love is the love that God loves us with. And our love is a response to him. We respond to God's love. He initiates love, we give him back love. His love is different than our love, given that while we were yet sinners, we're still sinners, he gave us love with, with us not deserving love. That's descending love that we talked about last week. A love without prompting or condition. A love that descends to those that are far off. The goal is that we love like that. But how can we love God like that when all of our love is a response to him? We can't love the same way because the love that we give to God, 
even if we're doing all the worship, even if we've like fasted for 40 days, we're on our face, all of that is just a response to the love that he's given us. So it's not the same love. So that's the dilemma. We can't love God like he loves us, even though the hope is that God's love would be made complete in us. So how does our love look like God's? Here's the answer. God provides the answer to Catherine. This is why I have put you among your neighbors, so you can do for them what you cannot do for me. That is, love them without any concern for thanks and without looking for any profit for yourself. And whatever you do for them, I will consider it done for me. When you love others without condition, not because they deserve it, because they need it, every human soul needs love. Because they need love. Because they need, they have needs, and you meet these needs. You are loving them with the kind of love that God loves you with, therefore, there's a great triangulation. God loves you, you love others, that love has now gone back to God, and he considers it love for him. Got it. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Let's pray, stand, no. <clears throat> this is why God identifies with our neighbor so we can do for our neighbor what we cannot do for God, which is to love another with complete and total generosity. And here's where we have to go a little bit deeper and ask, well, why? It's really good when you're just like um, a toddler and just keep asking why, because it leads you to places. It leads you to think, think why, 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 why does God want this kind of love? Why does God want us to love others the way, as a way of showing our love for him? And this specifically to those whom we cannot profit from, why? This is where we have to turn to Jesus' magnum opus, the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' recapitulation of the law. He goes up to a mountain, like Moses went up onto a mountain and received the law. Jesus is giving the law, a new law, a new command. And he's giving the Sermon on the Mount. If you ever read the Sermon on the Mount, it is incredible. But Jesus sounds absolutely crazy. He sounds crazy. He says things like, you have heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. That's the way you do justice, right? If you steal something, you have to pay it back. If you, if you kill someone, you then have to serve a, a sentence for life for life. But Jesus says, I tell you, do not resist an evil person. What? That's there, by the way. Did you know? Don't resist an evil person. Are you saying don't resist evil? Jesus says don't resist. He, he says if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other as well. He says, if someone wants your shirt, give them your jacket. If someone forces to, you to walk a mile, walk two. Then he says this, you have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. This makes really good like Sunday morning fodder, but what in the world is this? Do not resist an evil person, turn the other cheek, love your enemy, what is Jesus on about? You have to realize that Jesus is not trading in normal moral thought. He is not doing politics, he is not even doing ethics. Because is it ethical not to resist evil? 
He's not doing ethics the way humanity does ethics. Jesus is not trying to lay out a political program. You can't run a country like this. You need ethics and politics that are so important to human flourishing, but Jesus isn't doing that. Then what is Jesus doing? What is Jesus up to? Jesus is after something altogether different. Jesus is after divinization. He is after you becoming like God. That's what he's after. That's what he's doing. He wants you to be like God. Matthew 5, 46, this is the very end of what Jesus is saying, right after the section I just read. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? And here's the goal, here it is. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus is after making you like God. The thing that God is, the essence of who God is, here in Matthew, perfection, in 1 John, love, God wants you to become that. God becomes one of us so that humanity could be lifted up to, sh to share in divine life. He becomes one of us so that we can become like him. Well, okay, great, how does that work? How in the world do you do that? How do you become like God? How do you, do you just like try really hard to become like God? Do you practice becoming like God? Do you, do you like really try really hard to love like God? Do you make yourself love like God? Like, and also, how do you know that we're actually becoming like God in our love and not just an image of what we think God is? Another way of asking that same question is this. How do you, how do you command love? How do you muster up the will to love? How does God tell you to love and command it? How do you change your will? How can you change your will to love the other like God loves you? How do you do that? How does your will become God's will? And this is where the part of becoming like God is really important in, in that when you are invited into the divine life, you are invited into union with God, to becoming one with God. This is Jesus' prayer at the end of John. May they become one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that we can, be, we can have complete unity. Jesus is pulling us up into the divine life and with that divine life comes union with God and through union with God, we can become like him. God does not demand of us a feeling which we ourselves are incapable of producing. Jesus isn't like, you will love or you will go to hell and you will make yourself love, figure it out. Go write yourself a program for it or something, find some algorithm, do something. You better do it yourself, figure it out. That's not how it works. What Jesus is inviting us into is his divine life so that we can become like him through our intimacy with him, our knowing him, and also our practicing and doing what he commanded us to do by loving each other. The love that God is after in you is his love in you and through you. God loves you, and he makes us to experience his love. He makes us to feel his love. He makes us to know his love. Do you remember the end of um, the movie Good Will Hunting? Uh, 
where Robin Williams, who plays uh, Matt Damon, Matt Damon's like a math genius, and Robin Williams plays his therapist, and Matt Damon just goes around the movie just like, just totally annihilating people with his like smarts and wit. Like just, it's so fun to watch. Just watching someone just eviscerate someone else because they're so smart. It's a guilty pleasure. I'll, I'll, say, I'll say that. It's not good, it's not godly, but I do like it. Um, and then enter Robin Williams and his therapist, and there's a, um, there's a speech that he gives uh, Matt Damon um, by a pond, and he says, he says to, to, to Matt Damon's character, uh, you're a tough kid, and I ask you about war, and you will throw at me Shakespeare, right? Once more into the breach, dear friends, but you have never been near one. You have, you have never held your best friend's hand in your lap and watched him gasp his last breath. I ask you about love. You probably quote to me a sonnet, but you have never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable, known someone who can level you with her eyes. I look at you and I see an intelligent, confident man. I don't see an intelligent, confident man. I see a cocky, scared kid. You're a genius and no one denies that but personally, I do not care about all that. Then he says this, I can't learn anything from you that I can't read in some book. And I think this is the difference. There are things that, because we live in a, in a city that is trying to find the hack for almost anything, and the algorithm or AI will figure it out or whatever, to almost everything, this cannot be something that you can engineer or read in a book. This is something that you must experience yourself. And when you experience the love that is God yourself through Jesus Christ, when you experience it, and when you stay in that, this is what you said, remain in my love. When we remain in God's love, and by remaining in his love, then, then I say trying, doing, like actually going out and loving people. Actually doing, actually doing the thing Jesus said to do. When we do that, we will see, just like any good relationship, if you have a, a partner, a best friend, a marriage or whatever, when, you, when your wills align, you start to reject the same things and accept the same things. You start to see the world very similarly. You start to like the same things and not like the same things. Your will becomes no longer external but internal. They become the voice in your head when they're not there. This is exactly what union with God is like. St. Augustine, when he was writing, um, instructing young believers in the faith, those that were coming into Christianity, he basically said to the young Christians that Christianity at its heart is a love story. He said this, quote, before all else, Christ came so that people might learn how much God loves them. Christ came that you would know, that you would realize how much God loves you, that you would experience how much God loves you, and might learn this so that they would catch fire with love for him who first loved them. And so that they would also love their neighbor as he commanded and show them by his example. He who made himself their neighbor by loving them when they were not close to him, but were wandering far from him. And this brings me back to our text, and I'll close with a football illustration. You're welcome. First John 4.12 says, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God's love lives in us 
and his love is made complete in us. So, football, there was a little game on last night. All that. And if you're watching football right now during playoff season or whatever, um, there's something about when you watch football, uh, when a quarterback throws a pass and it's just suspended in midair, uh, if it's your team, all you want in life is for that pass to be complete. Just catch the ball and bounce. Do the two-step, whatever you have to do to make sure the ball's secure. Whatever it is, I don't really know football. I just know, complete the pass. And if they complete the pass, the pass is called a complete pass. And if they don't complete the pass, the pass is called an incomplete pass. Pretty simple. That idea of complete is exactly the idea that John is using here. When God shows us his love in Christ and gives us his love in Christ, that love is only made complete just like someone catching the ball from a, a, a footballer or whatever, a quarterback, there it is. It's just like catching a ball of a quarterback. That pass is made complete. How? It's caught. It meets its intended goal. It's doing what it was supposed to. It was supposed to fly in the air and land in his hands. That's what the goal of throwing the ball was. What's the goal of God pouring his love out in your life? When is it made complete? When you love one another. When we love each other, not only is God seen in us, but his love is made complete in us. The purpose, the reason God gives you his love, cleanses you of your sin, brings you into union with himself so that the world would know and see and experience the love that is God through your life. That's how love is made complete. That is how, I would say touchdown here, but that's, that's, that'd be horrible. I wouldn't say that. Basically, that's what's happening, is that it would be complete in your life. And, and this is hard to do, this is hard to do, period, full stop. Um, I wanna leave you with a little homework, though. If you take notes, this is the part where you can write this down. And I won't think you're on your phone or doing something else, but you should write this down. I wanna give you a meditation to practice this, practice this week when you have some time. A three-part meditation. You could set your timer for three minutes each part. You can set your timer for five minutes each part. Work yourself up to 10 minutes each part. It'd be 30 minutes long. And this is the meditation. You sit alone, quiet, still, a few deep breaths, and you meditate on this, this thought. You are the beloved. Not you, but God. You're meditating, your, your mind is set on God. You are the beloved. And, you're, and the, the a whole idea of the very first movement is that you would, uh, wor through wordless adoration, pour out your heart to God, your love for God. And if you find your mind getting distracted, come back to, you are the beloved. You are the beloved. You are the beloved. Do that for three to five minutes. Start. When your timer goes off, gently move to the second part. I am the beloved. And allow God to pour out his love upon you. Listen to the loving words of God that God has for you. That you are the beloved of God. That you were made out of love that you were not an accident. The things that happen in your life, God, God sees, and the things that you hate, I would, I, would, I would imagine God does too. The things that happen to you that you hate, the things, the abuses, the, the tragedies, these things, his heart breaks too. Just allow God to love you. And then the third movement, and this is kind of the, this actually, this whole meditation is how this whole series came about and how this whole like year got planned. 
you sit with, we are the beloved. And this is what you do in the third movement. This is really, really important. Anybody who comes into your mind and deny nobody, whoever pops into your mind, hold them before God and say they are the beloved of God. And try, and it will happen, I promise, to see them through God's eyes, that they are the beloved of God. And when you do this, and when you actually align your mind and your will to the way God sees people, this should change your perception of everyone. See, without God, all you see is another person. But when you have the love of God in you, you see people in their divine image. You start seeing the image of God in people. And it's the great hope of the Christian faith to become people of love, 